Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. I'm also joined by my brother, Dallin Dirkmont. Dallin has a law degree from the University of Denver, and he's going to provide some legal analysis for us, probably mostly against his will, but I'm glad to be joined by both of you. I am not here to be an expert in law by any means. I am I'm barely a lawyer. I think he's actually here because I'm worried that descendants of Philastus Hurlbut feel as if I may have slandered him when I said he was a th- thrice excommunicated fornicator. And, and, and you know, maybe there's something to that, but I, I have representation and that's what matters. In this podcast, we want to talk a little bit about the Council of 50 Minutes, the historical context surrounding the Council of 50 Minutes, and then some of Joseph's teachings in that uh, during that period. So I would guess that your average listener has no idea what the Council of 50 uh, is. And I'm also assuming that by the time I'm done with this podcast, your average listener will still have no idea what it is. Um, the Council of 50 is something that Joseph is going to form. We talked about this with Joseph Smith's presidential campaign, that he made the decision in, in late 1843 that not only was he going to run for president, but that the saints were going to have to leave the nation. That it, you know they, they'd bounced all around, state to state to state, and they were going to now actually have to go outside of the United States to the Republic of Texas, to Oregon Territory, which was jointly occupied by the British and by the United States, so it wasn't under total U.S. sovereignty, or to Mexico. And the idea was that they had tried American democracy and it had failed. So their plan was, we need to go somewhere else where no one else lives and, and, and well, there's, where there's no other white settlement Obviously, there's Native Americans, but but where we can be the old settlers, essentially, where where no one can say, oh, you're upsetting our politics, you're upsetting our economy. You know, here we were with this wonderful, great, you know, Baptist church and all these Mormons moved in or whatever, whatever the, 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 the claims have been against them in the past. To that end, in uh, March of 1844, Joseph receives a request from some of the brethren who are up laboring in the Wisconsin pineries. As as much as it pains me to say, having served my mission in Wisconsin, uh, the rural part of Wisconsin that I served in, at least for part of my mission, was actually the place where much of the timber for the Nauvoo Temple was, was, was cut, and then they would ship it down the river, down the Mississippi River. And up near Nielsville, Wisconsin. In fact, I... I Nielsville was part of one of my areas on my mission. Um, I don't know if there's anyone here in listening from Nielsville. I'm guessing a no, because there's no one who lives there and B, the very few people who live there aren't members. Um, but, uh, it was there that, uh, um, I, I first became acquainted with its connection with the, 
the, the building of, of the Nauvoo temple. At any rate, these brethren were up there and they also were disconcerted and upset at the, um, what had happened to the Latter-day Saints over the course of the past several years. And they'd kind of grown close to one another, living up there for months. And and so they, they sent this proposal down to Joseph, essentially saying, you know what, when we're done with the temple, when we're done cutting all this wood, let us go settle in Texas. Back then, Texas was a separate, independent country. Uh, it was the Republic of Texas, as any Texan who's listening will tell you. Uh, we, any Texan who's listening right now is already quoting off, you know. So I will say, so my parents moved from Idaho to Texas. My, this was two years ago. My dad has now been a Texan for two years. And we, for Thanksgiving, just a couple of weeks ago, he was frustrated by all the people that were moving into Texas and that weren't Texans, like my dad, who's lived there for two years. How many rodeos has he has he participated in? I mean, it's the way you, you, you'd hear him say it. All of the rodeos. Yeah. yeah. What level of Texas range Walker Texas? It was Ranger it was it? a funny it was a yeah. funny moment. But Texans have them some Texas. Pride, yeah. There there is sure. there is a very interesting aspect to uh, to. Uh, Texan nationalism that goes back to their their time of being an independent uh, republic. Well, at this time, they've, they've been an independent republic for almost a decade. And while there had been talk of annexation, there was a lot of opposition to it as well because people thought it would lead to war with Mexico. At any rate, Joseph is going to, and you know, he, Joseph loves to take a good idea and 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 take it far beyond what it is that the, that the originators thought. You, you know, you see this with the Relief Society. The women of the the women who initially form the Relief Society, their their initial plan is to just collect donations for the temple, and you know Joseph, obviously with a ton of influence from Emma, is going to say, yeah, this isn't just about gathering stuff for the temple, this is about serving the world, right? So Joseph, if you had to talk about Joseph in a way, one of the ways is that he is a big picture guy. Joseph, he sees that he sees the larger end. Sometimes that means that he is not the best on the logistics of things because, you know, if you want someone who's good on logistics, that's Brigham Young. Brigham Young's the one who has, this is exactly how much flour you're going to need to take so that you don't die somewhere in Wyoming, but you're probably still going to die somewhere in Wyoming because you're in Wyoming. Um, but for Joseph, he's seeing something as a much larger, uh, these, these, these kind of larger ideas. Look, Brigham Young has obviously grand visions too. But, you know, a little bit of their different personalities. And so Joseph forms this group of men that will eventually get up to 50 members. They'll actually have 50 plus because they'll have both a recorder and a secretary in there, right? Um, And uh, the purpose of the council is not only are they going to help in the short term with the electioneering of Joseph Smith's presidential campaign, but their primary role is to help the church find a place that they are going to move to outside of the United States. And when they get there, they are going to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Now, that sounds kind of odd to you, a little strange. Like, what do you mean by that? What I mean is they expected that they were going to move somewhere and set up a functioning government that was really just for Latter-day Saints. I mean, so so no one could be mad that Latter-day Saints are running the government because no one lives there except for them. That's, that's the idea behind it. And that that government would be what is functioning 
when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, that would be the government that he would assume. Now, that's a pretty grand plan. Talking about your grand scale scheme of things, what are you doing? Well, we're thinking about a bake sale. What are you doing? We're building the government of for Jesus when he comes back. I mean, as you can imagine, that is, a, you know, it's, it's a pretty big deal. And so <clears throat> there's some cool parts about this that I want to share with you in part because there's some of the teachings that Joseph gives in this council that have actually not really gotten much circulation uh, among the Latter-day Saints. The, the Council of 50 Minutes for the longest time were not publicly accessible they were in the the first presidency vault, um, um, and they they were they the church had them, but they weren't publicly uh, accessible. And with the Joseph Smith papers, they were they were published and and annotated. And we we did reference them. We talked about them. That remember when we talked about the martyrdom. That's where we got some of our other accounts of the murder of Joseph Smith was from this other record. But I'd like to share some of the that record with you. And um, one of the things I thought, this is a pretty good place to start, is uh, Joseph Smith's teachings on councils. Um, it's, you know, it's interesting because I think everyone who's been in the church has been a part of some kind of committee or council. Maybe you've been in ward council at some point, or you've been on some kind of committee, and um, th- those all have a different dynamic on depending on who's on them. Let me share my own personal experiences, uh, which haven't been many. I'm not exactly what we call leadership material, um, uh, and and but when I've when I've been on those uh, committees, my primary goal serving on the committee, aside from can this meeting end and then I can go home, is how can I desperately not offend anyone in the meeting? That's been my primary goal. My primary goal is, oh, Brother Johnson thinks that a really great way to raise money would be for the deacons to try to teach thirties dancing to the adults in our ward who would pay for that service as a fundraiser. So in my mind, I'm thinking, no, no way. No one's going to pay a dime for that out loud. I say, well, I like brother Johnson's idea. I mean, because I, I mean, obviously it's something he cares about and I don't want to offend him. And so I think, like obviously I'm being a little bit trite, but at least my experience, and I can only speak for myself, is that I generally tend in a committee or a, uh, a council situation to not, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to even, I've, I've heard people present ideas and, and in my mind I'm thinking that isn't going to work at all because of this and this. And instead what I've thought is, I really like your idea. <laughs> and I say it and I don't present the issues because what I don't want to do is upset the person who brought it up. I don't know if this is other people's experience. Uh, Richard, have you had similar experiences? No. Yeah. And no, I, I feel that that's the case. And, and it's not just, it's not just necessarily that I don't want to offend a person, but to your point, if it's something that they're passionate about, something they're excited about, something that now I don't have to right, do. Essentially, you're just saying because you're lazy. Well, yeah, something I don't yeah, now have yeah. to do. Yeah, so so let's see. Who's going to who's going to work on setting things up for scout camp back when there was scout camp? Well, this guy has this idea and this idea and this idea. So theoretically, you'd be the one doing that then, right? Yeah. I love the I idea. Love, this is the greatest, greatest idea, idea I've ever, ever heard. Yeah. And this is I vote that uh, brother so and so to be in charge of everything, and is also now bishop. Uh, I mean, the, the, 
the the reality is that not only is the water running to the path of least resistance, but also there's this kind of desire to to not offend. And and um, one of the things that's interesting about the Council of Fifty is the way that Joseph really goes after this mentality. So they're they're getting together. They're talking about the idea of leaving the nation and setting up a government that's patterned after the kingdom of God, preparatory to the second coming of Jesus. And Joseph is going to say directly that he wants people to really speak their mind on 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 what's going on. In fact, let me pull up his quote here. He said. Uh, some of this will be in third person because it's actually a William Clayton who's recording Joseph while he's speaking. So these are these are firsthand accounts that are primarily being recorded at the time that they're being said. We have very few of these outside of like church conferences where someone's recording it at the time. Uh, at any rate, uh, Joseph said that he wanted all the brethren to speak their minds on this subject and to say what was in their hearts, whether it was good or bad, that he did not want to be forever surrounded by a set of dough heads. If you're ever wondering whether or not Joseph used pejoratives for people, apparently he does. Um, and if they did not rise up, I think I wonder if that's a little bit of a you know entendre there that you're a doughhead and I need you to rise up. If they did not rise up and uh, uh, shake themselves and exercise themselves in discussing these important matters, that he should consider them nothing better than doughheads. I've tried to find what the equivalent terminology of a doughhead is in the 19th century. It's a pretty opaque term. Um, but I think the idea behind it is that, you know, in the middle of that skull of yours, it's soft and squishy and there's not a whole lot of substance to it. And what is he, what is he trying to say? Well, he's trying to say that you need to have an opinion in the council. Everyone has an opinion about everything. And if you don't have an informed opinion, it's only because you haven't you haven't looked at what the the considerations are. Either you're 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 being lazy about it or you haven't you aren't informed. But Joseph thinks that the entire point of having a council, why do we get together at all? The entire point is for every person in the council to say what they think. Now that's really hard because if the first person who speaks says the only thing we could possibly do for girls camp is go to this location and that's the only place we can go. I've already looked at it. I went there when I was a kid and that's the only place we can go. Well, when you're next up and you hate that camp or maybe you're me and you hate camping period and, and that's the only, you know, you don't think it's a great idea. What are you going to say? Joseph is saying, you you need to say what you actually think. It's tough though because we have a culture of if you say what you think, well then you're being offensive to somebody. So you're about to read a quote that that we read in uh, in a recent war council that I was in uh, several months ago, and uh, and after you read it, I'd love to share an experience from I mean just a general experience that we had from a war council without getting into any specifics, but. I assume that you were going to be talking about some kind of repentance process. <laughs> well, no, but it was it was it was it was relating to a ward mission plan, and then later a, a ward family uh, temple and family history plan. And it was we we read this quote. We I have a great bishop who does a great job in terms of being kind of the the anti first part of uh, DNC one twenty one. He's not authoritarian at all, and so anyway. I, I'm I'm doing a terrible job setting up this quote, but I absolutely love it. Well, uh, so one of the things that Joseph, he teaches is that he says, 
that the reason why men always failed to establish important measures was because in their organization, they could never agree to disagree long enough to select the pure gold from the dross by the process of investigation. That, that, that idea behind it is that coming to the right answer is actually a struggle. Even that, that, that imagery of the dross and the gold, the idea behind it is there's all kinds of impurities that are there with the gold. How do you separate it out? We don't separate it out just by throwing the gold in. You have to do something to separate the gold out. And Joseph's saying, the reason why we don't make better decisions in our councils is we're more worried about coming to a decision than we are about making the right decision. That people need to go into a council with the idea, I have this idea and I'm not married to it. If there's a better idea, I'm going to change it. I'm going to say why I think what I'm going to think. And when a decision is made that's not mine, I'm going to be totally okay with it. But I think, again, I don't want to be pejorative to other people. I'll just talk about myself. I know that when I've gone into a council situation and I had a really great idea of what I really wanted and I present it and the person's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're not going to do that because of X, Y, and Z, you know, sorry, brother Dirkmont, we're not allowed to build a bonfire in the gym <laughs> with real fire. And you, but no, it'd be a great part of the arrow of light ceremony. No, brother Dirkmont, we're not going to do that. I mean, I know that at least in my life, you know, I have taken it personally, which is kind of weird. I mean, it actually is an interesting aspect of our nature that a lot of the time we don't really care about what's going on at church at all, right? We we mail it in a lot. Again, I mail it in a lot. I'm just happy that I'm not the one speaking and, you know, until it approaches me having to have an opinion on that thing. Suddenly, the ward Christmas party that I haven't ever once cared about, I suddenly care about so much that I'm going to be offended if people don't like my idea. Well, why? Well, because we, we play, we take that ownership of it. Right. At any rate, Joseph thought that the only way you could get to the best answer was if you struggled to get there. And how could you on the, if just if I mean, you have eight people in a council. I mean, I guess you've got, you know, one in eight odds that the first thing that the first person says ends up being the very best thing. So, in in this recent ward council that we had in our in our ward, uh, the first one, like I said, we've re- we've read this quote in ward council as a spiritual thought. I, I love this quote. I, I want we would want for everybody to be able to speak their mind and come with their perspectives and be able to provide some of this. And this, by the way, from Joseph's, this is a very from a business perspective is a is a you know a very recent thing as it relates to change management and emotional intelligence. I mean, it's a very very progressive way of thinking. In in our particular ward council, um, we had some general ideas in terms of a ward mission plan and what it is that we were going to do. And then our Relief Society president shared her experience with missionary sons and was able to provide a, a context and a testimony in a way that, that uh, Others hadn't mentioned and we weren't thinking, and it completely changed the entire direction of what it was that we were doing in a way that I thought was 
was far more aligned to what the Lord would, would have us do. And if we didn't have, um, in this case, a wonderful Relief Society president that would share that, we would have missed out completely on on the direction that we ended up going. And You know, I think that not only does Joseph do this in this initial idea of sharing your ideas, even when there's a task for that committee, and and so one of the th- one of the committees that's formed in the Council of Fifty is a committee's formed to write the Constitution of the Kingdom of God on Earth. <laughs> so you think that your homework is difficult? I mean, these their job is to write the Constitution of of Jesus's government when Jesus is ruling the world. I'm not in. You know, what are you going to say? So that's a that's a tall order. And, and, uh, there's a committee formed and the members of the committee, they feel the weight of this. It's actually kind of funny as you read the minutes of the meetings from week to week to week, the, the council itself keeps asking, oh, we want the committee to report on the constitution. Uh, we're not ready yet to report. Uh, we, we really need you guys to report on the constitution. Uh, if you could just give us a few more, we've got so many, I don't know how many time. I mean, I've got a, a thing and, uh, Checking the specs on the, I mean, they, they keep trying to put it off and, um, and you can tell that they feel uncomfortable because it's such a daunting task. And so at one point they're actually going to suggest to Joseph, Hey Joseph, you know, anything we do, it, it's not going to be right. It's not gonna be the constitution for God. So maybe you should just receive this by revelation. And what Joseph teaches them is this other really fascinating aspect of, of at least what his understanding of how revelation comes. He explains to him that it's necessary for the council to exhaust their wisdom and except they do, they will never know, but they are as wise as God himself and ambitious men will like Lucifer think that they are as wise as God and try to lift themselves up and to put their foot on the necks of others. There has always been some man to put himself forward and say, I, I am the great, I. Now, Joseph speaking from a great deal of experience there, right? That um, think of the great men of the church at this point who have fallen away, who've raised themselves up to say, I am the great, I. I mean, you've got all the three witnesses. You've got people like the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Thomas Marsh. Uh, you've got uh, 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 people like Frederick G. Williams had, had fallen away, although he's come back at this point. I mean, this idea that you know these these people who get these high church positions. I'm I'm not even mentioning people like John C. Bennett because I'm, I'm not sure he ever believed anything in the first place except in himself. He had a lot of self-esteem. I'll give John C. Bennett that. One of these days we'll talk about John C. Bennett and it'll be one of those episodes where you're like, boy, this guy really doesn't like John C. Bennett and you'll be right. Um, but um, the, uh, the idea that Joseph, his response is, is an interesting thing that he actually doesn't want the answer and the revelation to come to the committee too easily. Why? He gives the explanation. I want the council to exert all their wisdom in this thing. And when they see that they cannot get a perfect law themselves, and I can, then they will see from whence wisdom flows. I know that I can get the voice of God on that subject. So he goes on to say, I don't want to be ranked with the committee. 
I'm a committee of myself and I'm not going to mingle with the committee on such matters. Let the committee get all the droppings they can from the presence of God and bring it to me. And if it needs correction or enlargement, then I'm ready to give it. The principles by which the world can be governed is the principle of two or three being united. Faith cannot exist without a concentration of two or three. The sun, the moon, and the planets roll on in that principle. If the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost were to disagree, the world would clash together in an instant. So it's a pretty cool explanation that he gives that if I simply give you the answer, then that actually opens up an avenue whereby you might criticize it. You might say, oh man, I think really he probably should have included this. Notice that's exactly what happened with Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Remember we talked about uh, the Articles and Covenants of the Church and how Cowdery was upset that the revelation included language that Cowdery didn't think should be in there. I think in part that's because Joseph got that revelation and Cowdery hadn't really been a part of that, that revelation when it was received. And so he could easily see the issues with it. So here Joseph's teaching the opposite. You create the very best thing you can create. You'll know better than anyone else that you have put forth every single effort you could. Then when revelation from the prophet adds to what you've created, you'll know that that must come from God because you already did all that you possibly could. If you put forth all of your own effort, then you actually aren't able to criticize by saying, oh yeah, if it had been me, I, I would have probably, you know, I'd have had a tricameral legislature in the kingdom of God on earth if they'd have given me the chance. No, you had your chance. You had the opportunity and now God is going to add to what you have. So to me, that's a cool principle that we can apply to ourselves that, <clears throat> We all want revelation and like me and chocolate, I want it now. <laughs> but sometimes we're, in order to get revelation that will actually alter us as a person, we need to struggle to get it. We need to try as hard as we possibly can. We need to seek out as much as we can, humble ourselves as much as we can, and then get to the point where that, that, revelation drops as the gentle dews of heaven, right? And and then we know where it came from. All of you have probably had that thought. Is this really revelation? Is this is this am I getting inspired to do this or is this just in my mind? Right? And you know, prophets and apostles have said, if it's something good, just do it. Okay. Don't, you know, you don't try to figure out where the good, you know, well, I can't tell whether the Spirit's telling me to go shovel my neighbor's walk or whether that's just in my mind. Frankly, I don't think God cares one way or the other. If it's a positive, good thing, then just go do it. But if you are struggling to receive an answer to a prayer, I think that in that struggle is where you gain that testimony that the answer you get must be from God. Because you you were on both sides of that, and now you felt it. Now you know. Um, as he goes on in this vein, talking about this, um, I'm going to talk as much about councils, Richard, as, as, as we did about townships. Um, this is much better than the, than the township conversation. And by much better, he means slightly worse. Um, he, he goes on to say that there, that I don't want anything. So, so he wants the council to hash things out. 
But that's not the same thing as not coming to a united decision. Everybody speaks their mind. Everybody lays out what they're going to do. But when the council makes a decision, that's the end of the discussion. Again, let me use myself as a pretty bad example. There have been times where I've been in a council where someone has said, hey, I think we should do this. And in my mind, I've thought, well, that's not going to work at all. I don't know why in the world they're doing But I didn't say anything. But what did I do? Well, I quietly in my mind, or probably to Angie, criticized the decision that was made. I said, yeah, well, they're trying to cook 4,000 hot dogs on a rock, and I'm not sure that that's even going to get hot enough, right? I mean, but I didn't say that in the council. And so Joseph says, look, when the council's made a decision, that's your time to talk. When it's made a decision, now you fully support it. And and so he says, I don't want any man to ever assent to anything in this council and then find fault with it. Don't decide in favor of anything until you know it. Then he goes on, and I'm going to just include this as a kind of propaganda piece for myself. Every man ought to study geography, governments, and languages so that he may be able to go forth to any nation and before any multitude in eloquence. I guess I should have left the languages part out because I don't know any languages except for a dialect of of Wisconsin English. Um, you might want to know that the drinking fountain's called a bubbler there, it's in case you were wondering. Um, I think we just found the name of this this episode. Yeah, the bubbler. Um, uh, or the babbler, probably the babbler. Um So there's one aspect of these Council of 50 teachings that I think is 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 something that I want to spend a little bit of time on. And that is that they're talking about how much they're being persecuted and they're planning to go somewhere else to set up a new kingdom, but they want to go somewhere that has a freedom of religion. They want to create actual freedom. You know, in theory, the Latter-day Saints are free to practice their religion. Uh, Men like Thomas Ford would say things like, if only the Latter-day Saints would agree to not participate in any elections, they could have been fine. And they, if only the Latter-day Saints agreed to not exercise their right to voting, then they wouldn't have been, uh, you know, they wouldn't have been persecuted the way they were. But the reality is, the Latter-day Saints they they know better because this isn't the first this isn't their first rodeo, right? This isn't the first time that they've attempted to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Revelation had told them that the city of Zion was going to be built in Missouri. And through a combination of of antagonism from those living there and sinfulness and apostasy from the people that were going to establish Zion, not only is is that a catastrophe, but the saints will eventually be driven out of Missouri. So Missouri really is something that that marks on the psyche of Latter-day Saints. And in a future podcast, we're going to spend a ton of time on the Mormon war in Missouri. Um just in case you're wondering whether to cancel your subscription now <laughs> or in the future, this means you can cancel it now. Um, so this idea of freedom of religion that's actually supported by by the government is a big deal to Joseph by the end of his life. It's not enough to just say, oh yeah, people have the right to worship how they want and then let mobs kill those people. Joseph thinks, and he'll talk about this in the Council of 50, that there is one great deficiency in the Constitution of the United States, and that is that it doesn't require 
the governmental officers to enforce laws guaranteeing liberty. What good is it to have a First Amendment to the Constitution if, in fact, you aren't going to do anything about it if people aren't going to allow people to have free exercise of religion? And so Joseph sees that as a major sticking point, that he wants this new Constitution in wherever they go to uphold religious liberty. Now, you've already seen this with some of the other things he's done. Everybody knows from the Articles of Faith, right, uh, that we claim the privilege of worshiping the Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege, this idea that people can worship however they want. This isn't just lip service. Nauvoo is going to pass a city ordinance in, in 1841 granting not only the free exercise of religion to all religions, and in fact, specifically saying um, Mohammedans, which is their 19th century terminology for, for, for those who practice Islam, but also Jews. You're pretty hard-pressed in the 19th century in the United States to find cities passing ordinance, ordinances granting Jews and Muslims free exercise of religion. But it's more than that. They actually enact penalties for people disrupting religious services of others in, in a way of, you know, you know, coming in. And, and, and so now granted most of the people living in Nauvoo are Latter-day Saints, so it's not going to be a big issue. It's not going to come up, but even the very idea that they're thinking about, it shows that it's so much on Joseph's mind. And so you get a real insight into how much this affects Joseph when he uh, talks about the makeup of the council. Joseph went on to say that for the benefit of mankind in succeeding generations, he wanted it recorded that there are men admitted to this, uh, admitted members of, of this honorable council who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That might surprise you. Three of these original members are actually not, mem- not, uh, uh, not members of the church. This, the idea you can have a government of God that doesn't include members of the church. And Joseph explains why. You know, these men neither profess any creed or religious sentiment, whatever, that it to show that in the organization of this kingdom, men are not consulted as their religious opinions or notions in any shape, form, whatever, that we act upon the broad and liberal principle that all men have equal rights and ought to be respected and that every man has a privilege in this organization of choosing for himself voluntarily his God and what he pleases for his religion. Inasmuch as there is no danger that every man will embrace the greatest light. It's a very fascinating aspect of Joseph Smith. He allowed people from various different religions to come and preach to people in Nauvoo. For all the people who say things like, oh, Joseph Smith's a religious tyrant. Oh, Joseph Smith, da, da, da. How many of them do you know that invited, how many religious tyrants do you know that invite people of other religions to come speak to his people. For Joseph, I think it's based upon this idea that truth is is out there in all different places in the world. And if you have the most truth, then I guess you don't have to be worried about losing it if someone comes and talks to you. Joseph wants members of the church to understand what other religions believe, what other philosophers believe. He's not just inviting Unitarian ministers to speak to the saints. He's inviting Owenite socialists from England to speak to the saints. 
Now, if they get up in front of the saints and are like, let me tell you why your church is false, I mean, Joseph is going to respond. But the point is, Joseph has this idea that the truths that he is revealing from God are so powerful that anyone who understands them isn't going to leave them through some casual discussion of transubstantiation by a visiting minister. That if what you have is true, then what you have is also going to be, it's going to be unsinkable. Um, so he's, he's going to go on and explain further about his idea of religious liberty. Part of the reason why he says, you know, men are going to embrace the greatest light. He then goes on to say, God cannot save or damn a man only on the principle that every man acts, chooses, and worships for himself. Very interesting. <clears throat> we, we probably don't feel very comfortable with the God cannot phrases. We've referenced them before with Doctrine and Covenants section 93. Here Joseph was saying, agency is the essential aspect to exalting belief. You have to choose. Like my high school basketball coach would say, you got to want it. You know, you, you've got to choose. You have got, this has got to be something that you've chosen. It can't be forced upon you. And, and, it, and, and it can't be something that, that's just there in your lap. You have to choose it. And Joseph teaches that, that that's how you gain salvation. The reason why you can't force someone to believe something is forcing them to believe it won't actually save them. They have to choose to believe it. He's going to go on to say that, um, because of the intolerance, Joseph lived in a very intolerant world, which we've already seen with some of the persecution. But he goes on uh, uh, to chastise the members um, that because the important aspect of worship is agency, <clears throat> that the that is the importance of thrusting from us every spirit of bigotry and intolerance towards a man's religious sentiments. That spirit that has drenched the earth with blood when a man feels the least temptation to such intolerance, he ought to spurn it from him. It becomes our duty on account of this intolerance and corruption, it being the inalienable right of a man to think as he pleases, to worship as he pleases, and being the first law of everything that is sacred, to guard the ground all the days of our lives. I will appeal to every man in this council, beginning at the youngest, till, that when he arrives at the years of a hoary age, so white-haired, that he will have to say that the principles of intolerance and bigotry never had a place in this kingdom, nor in my breast, and that he is then even ready to die rather than to yield to such things. Nothing can reclaim the human mind from its ignorance, bigotry, superstition, except those grand and sublime principles of equal rights and universal freedom to all men. And then, Joseph gives a quote that I wish I knew younger. I'm, I mean, I'm glad I know it now, but it really encapsulates the way Joseph Smith sees people. As I've talked about before, Joseph Smith is a lover of people. And here he says, we must not despise a man on account of infirmity. We ought to love a man more for his infirmity. I can't even think of a more beautiful sentiment. Uh, very much similar to what the Lord Jesus Christ says 
when, when he says, them that are whole have no need of a physician, but them that are sick. Of course, we all want to live that perfect life and we all want to make it seem like we're not struggling and we don't want anyone to know that we're all secretly sinners because we all are sinners. And sometimes that causes us to judge unfairly those that are struggling around us. We don't know what they're going through. Recently, uh, a friend of mine had an experience where someone judged what they had been saying and doing totally incorrectly. This person was in a position where they had a lot of terrible things that were going on in their life and they were reacting to the bad things that were happening in their life. But the person judging them was so wrapped up in themselves that they didn't even stop to ask if something was going on in this friend's life. We, we all sin, so we're all, we are all infirm. Every one of us is, is, is a sinner in the eyes of God. Instead of seeing someone as a sinner and saying, well, I, welcome to hell, population you, bring the marshmallows for the, for the great you know, fire that you're going to be in, we actually should be moved by compassion that because this person is struggling, to want to be with them more, to want to find a way to help them more, to want to find a way to raise them up. That, that's what Joseph's saying. I'm going to go on back to quoting Joseph instead of talking because he's better than me. Um, Nothing is more congenial to my feelings and principles than the principles of universal freedom, and it has been from the beginning. And then Joseph gives, I mean, occasionally you'll hear people say things like, oh, I couldn't really be friends with someone who's not a believer. That is not Joseph Smith. Joseph is not only friends with people who don't believe, Joseph loves people. He loves people that are sinners who are never going to make it as the, you know, they're not going to be leading your, your ward as your next bishop. Joseph loves people who don't even believe in God. Joseph loves people who believe but believe in a different religion. Joseph loves, he just loves everybody. And one of the things he he says is, if I can know that a man is susceptible of good feelings and integrity and that he will stand by his friends, then he is my friend. And then an insight into how much Joseph both saw that his death was coming and how much he loved the presence of other people. He said, the only thing I'm afraid of is that I will not live long enough to enjoy the society of these my friends as long as I want to. He then goes on to say, let us then from, from henceforth drive from us every species of intolerance. When I have used every means in my power to exalt a man's mind, and I've taught him righteous principles to none effect, and he's still inclined in his darkness. Yet the same principles of liberty and charity would be manifested by me as though he had embraced it. Again, I can't think of more beautiful sentiment when we're talking about sharing the gospel. Do we share the gospel with our neighbors and friends in this kind of closed-fisted way that, well, they better accept missionaries in the house in the next two months for us to make our ward quota or I'm never speaking to them again. 
Do we do we attempt to share the gospel, and then when it you know we we butt up against you know that they don't really want to listen, do we just kind of cast them aside? Well, I was going to invite you over for dinner when I thought you were a chance at making a number, but now that you aren't, well, we'll see you. For for Joseph, he he manifests exactly what he's saying here. If you're my friend and I love you because you're a good person and you don't accept the gospel, well, then I'm still going to love you because you're a good person. And hopefully we can all cultivate that. There are many other things that Joseph is going to teach in this council. And to find out more about them, you're going to have to join us for our podcast next week. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.